I want to be like, what the fuck are you expecting? It's a story, yo. <laughs> yeah, it's a story. This is a myth. There's a, a debate about whether scientists are saying too much. It's actually making people despair and not want to do anything. Hey, yo, what is going on? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden-Smith. And I am Troy Polidori. And this week we are going to talk about what was probably the television miniseries event of the year so far. Oh, God, this is going to fit perfectly into my shitty minute, actually, which <laughs> will make sense in a second. But anyway, uh, Chernobyl. We're going to talk about Chernobyl this week. Yeah, buddy? Yeah, it kind of was an event, right? Like most shows nowadays, especially on Netflix and stuff, people are watching them at different times, so it's not really a singular event. But uh, HBO still has the capacity to to do that. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, Stranger Things 3 came out as well. But, and, and it, you know, it took up a lot of social media space data production. But it what didn't quite have the same huzzah that... Uh, that the Chernobyl phenomenon had. I mean, it was like, it was, it was pretty intense, man. <laughs> so, um, so cool. So we'll get into that in a couple of minutes. Um, but of course, before that, we want to do a couple of housekeeping things. So T-Roy, what's up? Yeah. So first of all, if you want to support what we're doing here at Owls at Dawn, you can go to patreon.com slash Owls at Dawn and support us there. There's several tiers of support you can contribute to, and there's many different items and goodies you can get uh, and lose your support so or for your support, including the monthly newsletter that we, de- we develop every month with extra sticky leave and extra shitty minutes, uh, as well as bonus episodes when we release them intermittently. And what else do we do on Patreon? Uh, and then the uh, Democracy Motherfuckers, uh, yeah. which gives people access to be able to recommend an episode topic that we will discuss, which will probably start fielding suggestions, I would say, in the next couple of weeks for the next one. The last one we did was a two-part series on the Zizek and Peterson debate. We did one before on kind of the philosophy of suicide, which turned into a three-parter. What was the one we did before that? It was a, We end up doing series is how we've tackled these so far. I don't know if that's it's not supposed to be the way things are done, but it's become a trend thus far. So Dude, we'll see we, what happens. We are the gods of our own universe, so we decide how it's done. <laughs> I keep telling you this. That, that's why we do this podcast. It gives me some sense of power in this crazy and disempowering world. Um, and then also, we have our 100th episode that's going to be coming up here in the next couple of weeks. So that's crazy, Troy actually man. had... I know. It is. You know what's funny? <laughs> it's crazy to think that we've done 100 episodes, but then at the same time, we've also been doing this for like coming up on three years. Three years, man. Like, like it'll be three years this fall, won't it? Or for me, spring for you, fall? I don't know. I was yes, probably no. on drugs half that time, so I don't remember anything. Gosh, I don't remember. Yeah, <laughs> I don't remember, but it's almost three years, which is crazy to think. But yeah, so uh, 100th episode. And Troy had a good idea for what we're going to do, so I'll let him explain. Well, we'll see if it's a good idea. I think the uh, the outcome of the consequences will determine that. But what we're planning—it well, was on a doing, lower bound, decent idea. Yeah, it's got the sort of framework of a of a good idea <laughs> in there somewhere. So what we're going to do is solicit from y'all um, different questions of the more 
absurd, bizarre, academic adjacent, um, just not your typical questions that you would ask in your iTunes reviews or in emails or Twitter about purely academic, philosophical uh, type stuff. Just stuff that's off the wall a little bit, a little left to center. So if you have questions like that you thought be, you think would be interesting, go ahead and either tweet that um, to us uh, at Twitter, uh, at owls underscore at underscore Don, or either of our individual Twitter accounts are linked there. You can email us at owls at donpodcast at gmail.com. You can snail mail us. You can do smoke signals. You can use telepathy. <laughs> Whatever way you want to do it, get your questions to us, and we'll choose the best, most interesting uh, most fun ones, and we'll try to answer those and expand on them on the 100th episode extravaganza. Sweet. So yeah, just keep in mind. So this is episode. What we're at 95. This 95. episode is that right? Yep. So this is 95. So just think you got uh, probably about a month to get those into us, and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So shoot those on over as soon as you can. But you know what we got to do, Austin, before we start talking about Chernobyl in the main segment. Oh, I do. That's the shitty minute. This is the part of the podcast where one of us rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding our gears this week. So, Austin, what's got you down? So, I totally just committed the sin that I'm going to bemoan a minute ago when I said it was like the event of the year. And it's, I, I, I'm just, I've seen a frequent rate of uh, how everything of let's just say the assessment of the greatest you know what i mean this became particularly noticeable to me over the past couple of weeks during the uh Kawhi leonard free agent signing and then trade we're, with we're still not talking about that austin i know i know i know so <laughs> and real quick for people listening i know we talk about basketball but this isn't a basketball thing per se so don't worry it, it actually filters into so many other things and literature and political events and moments in history um whatever it's that we we become so obsessed with like analyzing and assessing what the greatest is but we don't just do it like once every 10 years or like once every 20 years where we have time to actually allow things to happen we do it like every new episode of the sports show or every new episode of the political talk show or every new twitter poll or whatever and it happens every day all the time, multiple times a day from multiple sources. And it gets so specific that I find it so ridiculous because it's not just, hey man, who's the greatest player or what was the most important historical event or what's the greatest artists that have ever lived, which is still, I think, inherently philosophically problematic in its own right. But it goes so much worse than that because it's like, who's the greatest player at the moment? And then it's like, who's the greatest duo at the moment and it's like what's the greatest playoff performance and it's like who's the greatest duo under the age of 30 and then it's like who's the greatest backcourt duo under the age of 25 and it just gets more and more specific and you see this a lot in mma too it's like the greatest knockout the greatest submission the fastest knockout the the, the latest that in a stoppage or a knockout has ever occurred in a fight i mean it's like this constant, and it's because partly because of you know advanced analytics and stuff like that is helping us specify and analyze data in a different way. But I feel like there's like this real neurotic obsession. It's almost like this compulsive pathological obsession that we need to control the now. And I feel like this actually does open us up to a really maybe interesting symptom of hyper modernity 
So modernity sometimes is theorized as being um, a time in which there is a self-conscious awareness that this is the now, uh, a, a time of enlightenment, right? Kant famously writes this essay, What is Enlightenment? Foucault writes a response to it. And, um, you know, people think of Hegel as being like a philosopher of unreconciled modernity. And so there's a lot of questions about what is modernity. Marshall Berman writes this book called All That Is Solid Melts Into Air that is a response response to, uh, you know, the Mark, famous Marx and Engels quote from the Communist Manifesto. And it, so it, it ha, there are these different ways of understanding what modernity is. But one of the ways is that it has to do with like this self-reflective or self-conscious awareness um, that you are in like the presence of the novel or presence of enlightenment or present of uh, a moment that is filled to the brim with potency for the future. And so what I wonder if what that does is that sort of denigrates the value of the past to becoming just pure instrument. It's just something that is instrumental in order to just validate how special and how uh, important the now is, which then feeds into our tendency to need to be able to assess what the greatest is because we are now at the pinnacle of the mountain. We can now look back and we can now uh, kind of eradicate all the the importance of the past, we can assess what's the greatest now, and then, of course, add to that recency bias, which comes where it's like, of course LeBron's the greatest. We don't even think about Bill Russell. Like, who remembers Bill Russell, right? I do. Yeah, we talk about Will. We talk about magic. Yeah. <laughs> Did Troy say I do? Is that yeah. what you just said? <laughs> <laughs> I do. <laughs> but, like, you know, we don't think about uh, greatness of the past or uh, these great historical events. We kind of we, we forget things, which makes a lot of sense. Um, but I also wonder if there's this larger sort of symptom of not just modernity, but hyper-modernity, where, where we are constantly, like, reinforcing our place so that we remind ourselves and reassure ourselves that our place in the now, 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 now is important, that we can make that scientific, technological, uh, instrumental in assessment of, uh, of, of our place in the cosmos. And maybe that's because we don't have really like a deep attachment to tradition and to like a deep history and a deep past and to community and to traditions, uh, like cultural traditions as much as we used to. And so this is maybe a way that we can kind of re-legitimize ourselves in a sea of postmodern skepticism that has kind of dismantled the legitimacy of those previous um, things that did previously ground us. You know, so it's just like a weird thing that is annoying as fuck that I think has larger symptomatic implications. So that's my shitty minute. Yeah, so I think there's a couple of different strands going on in what you're what you're criticizing here. It seems to me like the the common underbelly or the common bad guy is kind of a teleological notion of history, in the sense that yeah, um, viewing the past as simply an instrument for producing the now and a sort of necessary connection between the past and the present. Um, and that I, I agree with certainly is a problem and that seeps into basically, I think anything from sports to media to, um, politics and everything else, right? You can see that as a common thread, um, on, I think both the right and the left in politics. And so it seeps into everything in culture as well. But I'm, I'm I guess maybe I'm not quite seeing the connection between that and this tendency to, sort of overanalyze and filter every bit of data down to the nth degree for like talking points. So the stuff you started with, with talking about the greatest TV show and the greatest, uh, you know, duo in at the NBA or whatever else, what's the connection between uh, those two? Or is there not a connection? I'm missing something. I mean, I just wonder if there isn't like 
um, a kind of neurotic obsession with needing to assess that is from our vantage in that history. And that that's um, maybe in uh, maybe a characteristic, not just of modernity, but of what some people are referring to as hyper-modernity, which is uh, sort of in the wake of, it's like post-postmodern efforts to re-legitimize. So if postmodernism is the sort of skeptical dismantling of tradition, meta-narrative, connection to the past and tradition and things that previously grounded uh, people's places, whether or not that is true or that's just kind of like itself some sort of fabulated image is, is up for debate, but let's just buy that narrative for the, for the moment, then maybe hyper-modernity is this effort to sort of re perpetually re-legitimize ourselves at this rapid rate where we are constantly needing to assess uh, our place in history so that we can kind of ground ourselves in the wake of uh, the sort of raising of all of such grounding. And so I'm wondering if instead of using tradition, we're using analytical tools of quantification, extensional quantification, and that that's what the obsessional neurosis is, that it's that analysis and like algebraic equations and shit like that in the form of uh, historical assessment through the sort of discursive use of the greatest lists, that if that isn't a form of uh, sort of neurotic obsession. Oh, yeah, I think it certainly is. But, you know. There's some like Lacanian enjoy your symptom there, right? Like, do you remember that scene in American History X where um, Edward Norton and the uh, African American guy in prison are debating uh, who was better, a Magic Johnson or Larry Bird? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's, it's great. It's an awesome scene because they actually kind of yeah. come to respect one another despite yeah. still being annoyed with the other's sort of uh, <laughs> you know intricacies of their behavior and and whatnot. Um, but yeah, that's like nerding out can be fun, but I, yeah, I do wonder mm. if like that nerding out, um, uh, phenomenon, which I think everybody loves when it comes to the specific things that they care about in life. Um, there's something that's like captured and twisted uh, into this like, you know, perverse form, um, in modern media culture where it's, it's taken too seriously and there's like fighting over it and it's monetized and it's no longer like this kind of thing you do for fun in your free time. It's just like, a, like we call it bullshitting, right? It's bullshitting. Mm. Uh, it's hard to do that now because everything's taken too seriously and everything is a way to monetize your image and everything can get you fired from your job if you say the wrong thing. Mm. And the greatest lists, they, they sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, they exploit sensational the impulse, right? Or they, they, they exploit the emotional impulse that responds to sensational claims and sensational events. So if everything is the greatest, if everything is the best, if every list is heightened in its emotional capital, then that seems to be actually kind of nefarious in a lot of ways, you know? And, and it isn't like, um, and so there are a couple things here. One is that then it seems that the lists kind of lose any sort of deep meaning, right? If you're just constantly, then it's the greatest now as we assess it in July of 2019, but it's going to be different after the next free agent trade or after the next novel that's written or after the next series uh, of TV programs are released. So we have to reassess next month and then the next month and then the next and then weeks and then down to the days and down to the fucking hours as as 
information is constantly being produced. And so it kind of saps out the deep meaning of the superlative of best and greatest, right? Um, but then simultaneously, like you say, that doesn't mean that that all analysis or that all assessment or that all judgment uh, goes out the window because in a sense, I think there is something inherently – no, not in a sense. There's absolutely something inherently human about reflective consciousness and the way that it synthesizes things and uh, takes the kind of spread of sense data into manageable bits. And so this is actually a form of that. But what, what you say is actually quite interesting because that adds a sort of um, another causal mechanism into maybe why it is that this, that the rate of analysis or assessment is so intensified. And I think that's the thing I'm responding to more than anything. Not the tendency for humans to be like, wow, that was a really lovely evening and the best night of my life sort of thing. But it just seems that there's like almost a pressure that is being imposed upon us to um, assess everything as being the best moment, the most impactful moment, the greatest moment, the best person, the best this, the best that. And I don't know. It, it just seems to sap a lot of the meaning of the words. Uh, and it saps a lot of the meaning of the process of assessment. Yeah, I wonder if maybe there's something, there's definitely something inherently human about overreacting to positive stimulus in that sense mm. and thinking dropping these superlatives when they really don't belong if you had reflected longer on it and got more distance from it. But then you kind of just let that go, right? It's ephemeral. Whereas now in the internet age, that stuff lives forever. Um, <laughs> so mm -hmm. yeah, it, it, it loses its meaning because it never really wastes away and disappears from consciousness. And we're not quite adapted yet to that kind of reality, right? Mm. Yeah. It's good to forget. Yeah. What, didn't Nietzsche say that? If he didn't, it sounds like something he would have, and he should have said. Oh, he did. It is man. good to, yeah. No, this is one of the things um, Bernard Stiegler talks about: uh, nemo technical devices, the these kind of technological instruments that preserve memory. And I've been thinking a lot about how we are just saturated in the age of the internet with nemo technical devices that it won't let us forget that everything that has ever been said, everything that has ever been recorded. Uh, it's all preserved, and in a sense, that's great because we have access to a wealth of information that we would have never had access to in previous uh, human epochs. But in a sense, it also it is limiting, like you say, uh, with the that we should forget because we are constantly our landscape is constantly being structured by these mnemotechnical devices as they sort of frame and orient how it is that we face the world at every given moment. And then the larger the field of nemo-technical devices is fleshed out and is beefed out, the greater the intensity and the greater the rate of demand and then the limits that they set and that they impose upon us. Sartre refers to this as a practico-inert field. It is the field of material conditions that orient ourselves to the world. But that field is great and, and necessary as... Um, as a, as a field that, that sets the landscape of values that condition our future historical activities. But it also has a sort of stifling, or it can have uh, a stifling aspect to it. Not that it's bad and you don't do it, but it's just understanding kind of how does it function. And if you're constantly sort of facing these limits and these demands 
at an intensified rate, what type of effect does that have on our individual psyches, but then also on our social relations? And I just wonder in the age of hypermodernity, if this isn't like a self-induced, self-reinforcing, um, like pathological obsession to almost self-sabotage ourselves as we seek to re-legitimize in a world that has no foundations by inducing ourselves into a sort of weird stupor uh, of falling in love with the algorithm as being that thing that can re-legitimize us. Because that's what can manage those demands. And then in responding to those demands, it just sort of creates more demands and more limits by beefing out that field of nemotechnical devices because we don't forget anything. And so therefore we're always haunted by the new bits of information and whatever. I don't know. I'm kind of going off on one now, but <laughs> yeah, that, that's that old black mirror episode. What was it called? Um, the entire history of you where they have, those, Oh yeah. What they called like seeds, that's... seeds or something devices. <sighs> yeah. That's exactly that. That's it, man. You neurotically obsess over these images in your memory that you're able to recall exactly in ways you would otherwise just forget about or gloss Fuck, over. I'm really glad you mentioned that because that actually will really... I'm going to write a paper about that or I'm going to use that in a paper. That is right. <laughs> That's exactly right. The entire history of you. That's a great fucking episode. That might oh, be the best so good, Black yeah. Mirror episode. Yeah, I think yeah. it's like it's in the top, top three for sure. <laughs> and that is what we call irony. <laughs> All right, so should we jump into our main segment here? Yeah, dude, let's do it. So we're talking about the HBO television miniseries Chernobyl. And uh, I think before we start talking about it, there'll be spoilers. So if you haven't seen it, go watch it. If you um, don't know, it's based upon the uh, historical event in 1986 in Chernobyl, which is in modern-day Ukraine. Um, and it involves a nuclear reactor exploding in a way that was seemingly unpredictable <clears throat> given the previous knowledge about that kind of nuclear reactors. I believe they're called RBMK reactors. And uh, the um, sort of bureaucratic albatross that's uh, exacerbated the dangers of the situation as well as the investigation done by scientists in the Soviet Union uh, to find out what happened and what can be done about it. And the series has been met with pretty much I would say a consensus of uh, acclaim, universal acclaim from media critics. Is that correct? Or have you seen uh, little cracks in that? I mean, it's no, it's pretty much a consensus. Yeah. Yeah. Like I think on IMDb, it's the highest rated TV show of all time. No, it's new. Wow. So that will do something. Uh, but I think it overtook like Breaking Bad and Game of Thrones. And um, that may have changed by the time we're recording this. But I know previously at some point. Uh, it was rated that highly, so yeah, it's um, mm. and deservedly so as a as a television series, as a media creation, it is top notch, uh, incredibly enjoyable. I found actually what's kind of astonishing to me, and I think a really positive events in sort of television history is Chernobyl. While it's obviously a kind of a Hollywoodish creation, right? Um, it takes you seriously as. As an, as an adult viewer, at least more so than most really popular evental uh, type television series, I think. Um, there's, in the final episode of the, of the show, there's an entire section of almost the entire episode, which is basically like a, a, like an educational lecture 
<laughs> on how mm. the reactor exploded. Um, that looked like someone who was trying to develop their very first PowerPoint before the age of PowerPoint. Um, <laughs> and so I appreciated that a lot amongst many other things about the show. Um, that said, there has been some negative criticism of the show, mainly as far as I can tell coming from more left-leaning circles, academic types who are criticizing um, the Hollywoodization of the show, which even though I think is less so than almost any other property out there and probably less so than you would imagine uh, a series mm. about Chernobyl would be. Um, it still exists. It's, it's still definitely glossed over and um, details are uh, taken in sort of ideological directions, which are pretty clear upon reflection. And so I guess I've sort of said my piece about what I enjoyed about Chernobyl as a, as a media creation. Um, before we get into sort of the, the negative aspects of it and what we think about those, did you have a pretty similar reaction to uh, the show as a TV series? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a bunch of ways that we can assess it. I mean, one, I think it's an interesting anomaly in the uh, in the the uh, the body of work of the writer Craig Mazan, who previously is a writer of mostly comedy films, and so all of a sudden he comes out with this. I mean, like uh, Identity Thief, The Hangover Part Two, Hangover Part Three. Uh, then he also did the Huntsman Winter's War, which is, I think, the sequel to the Snow White and the Huntsman film with uh, Charlize Theron and what's her name? I can't remember from Twilight. Anyway, um, <laughs> my 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 mind. Is, oh, Kristen Stewart. Um, I have I have friends that have huge crushes on her. That are like, come on, Austin. We we talked about her for hours in bars before. <laughs> like I know, man. I can remember. Um, but so he he seems to have an interesting kind of scattershot writing history. And then all of a sudden he comes out with this mini series that's intense high drama. So it seems kind of interesting. I think that's, that's one thing that's interesting. Uh, then I also think that, that if you look at it from the perspective of like prestige TV drama, that it's got an interesting place in, um, you know, the past few decades of what HBO has been churning out both in mini series and also in, in kind of long form TV series. And uh, I think it's up there in terms of its capacity to grip audiences with the best of them, right? Like it's it is very gripping television. Despite for what, five being episodes, slow. yeah. Despite being very slow. yeah, you know what? Well, some of the episodes I didn't find were so slow, and then some I found were a little bit slower. And um, you're absolutely right. Despite being slow, because. It's able to cause intrigue. One, I think, through precisely one of the things that you mentioned, this, this, um, this simultaneous ability to attach us to characters while also stimulating our intellectual journey, that we learn about what went wrong. So we're learning like the science and some of the bureaucratic and political decisions along the way. So it's also quite, quote unquote, educational. Not in the sense that, and we can we'll, we can probably talk about this because this fits into some of the criticisms. Not in the sense that this is like the most accurate depiction of all the actual ins and outs of what happened in the reactor or the events leading up to the reactor's meltdown, but more in the sense that it that doesn't matter. And this is maybe why people will criticize it because it's kind of insidious and in how it's able to grip us, but the way that it's able to kind of hold us um, like a great book 
where you can't wait to finish something that you're doing so that you can go and learn more about whether it's the story or if you're, you know, researching something that's really important to you or that you just find really fascinating. It kind of has that same ability to do that, but infused with this heightened emotion because the stakes feel so important, right? Like the stakes feel like this is the most important moment in history right now. And I think it's filmed that way on purpose so that, you know, they even like uh, they kind of fudge with some of the numbers to talk about how big a potential full on explosion or meltdown would be if they don't take some of the actions that they propose when they're, uh, you know, talking with the general committee and stuff. And it makes you really feel like, oh, my God, this is this was like the most important historical event ever. And its ability to do that from a craft perspective is really fucking brilliant to be able to take like a kind of what could be stale documentarian type of story and turn it into just really, really, really gripping, quote-unquote, educational television. And then, of course, I think a lot of the stories, there's a lot of personal interest in these characters um, from everyone from, you know, the firefighter and his family to uh, the actual scientists and what they're figuring out. Um, to some of the political bureau bureaucrats and how they're they find their fit within the larger bureaucratic system. So I found it from a craft perspective to be really interesting, uh, from a storytelling perspective to be really interesting. And I thought it was shot really lovely too. So I think formally it's really nice as well. Yeah, I think some of the people who are critiquing its Hollywoodization are maybe missing the point a little bit in that any media creation about Chernobyl really easily could have been like a Dwayne Johnson movie, you know, and just right. been completely ridiculous. And I think there's been a, several movies like that actually about Chernobyl in the past 10, Yeah. There's like years. horror films and shit like that, where people go into the grounds and they're like zombified radiated bodies that have been living there for decades and they come out and they haunt people or shit, you know I mean? Yeah, or like just really ancient aliens type documentary and work where it's just completely ludicrous and uh, utterly speculative. And it, it avoided both those pitfalls. And while there's still elements that are um, clearly you know, Hollywood tropes and things that are meant to pull at our heartstrings despite you know, factual accuracy, um, I think it did incredibly well relative to what really easily could have been there and what probably would have been really enticing to make if, uh, you know, just being meme worthy was your goal. And the fact that it was still incredibly meme worthy and um, talked about on social media and viral and all that stuff, I think is a testament to uh, how excellent it is as a media creation. And hopefully a harbinger of what's to come um, in the terms of sort of incentivizing, you know, Netflix and HBO and all these streaming platforms to make high quality drama like this and know that it can still do really well and doesn't have to necessarily be like a Game of Thrones ripoff or something. Yeah, I think I, I get I get really annoyed actually when people critique the Hollywoodization of a Hollywood production. I want to be like, what the fuck are you expecting? Like, it's a story. What yo. This, <laughs> yeah, it's a story. This is a myth. This is literally a myth. Everything that is ever produced out of a film studio is a myth. No matter how true to real events they claim that it is, no matter if they're source material, they're all myths. They're all fables. And that's the point, is that when we tell stories, we we 
we shouldn't go in with like our scientific lens and be like, ah, but that scientist isn't wasn't really one scientist. There was a team of scientists. Well, duh, man. They didn't have enough fucking time to develop all of those characters over five episodes. And if you can condense them all down into one, it creates a much more gripping character. Like that that's just how they one have to do things for the sake of like the economy of time and space on a page and uh shooting time but also simultaneously it also makes it much more interesting and i think one of the things that we need to realize is that with storytelling there's something about the emotional event that is much more important than simply the informational event like there are tons and tons and tons and tons of books on chernobyl if you want to learn about these different Russian scientists and where they fit in the hierarchy and in the pecking order and how they fit within the global community and what really took place at this kind of public uh, event that was televised. You can go look through those annals and you can kind of construct your own type of story, which itself, surprise, surprise, is actually going to be a fabulation of it of its own. It's just going to be one from a different angle. It's just got a different horizon of meaning that is uh, that is conditioning it. So I don't know. I, I, it like really irks me when people are like, "Oh man, it wasn't it wasn't true, man." I'm like, "Yeah, no shit, bro. It's fucking entertainment." <laughs> but simultaneously, at the same time, there's also a pitfall in that, and the pitfall is is that people. Um, people do have a criticism that I think is valid in that there is sort of like an insidiousness in how it is that ideology is reproduced, right? The problem is, is that when people think that somehow they can get beneath that and scrape beneath the ideology to get to the quote-unquote really real, that I think itself is actually a fool's errand. And that's where I think a lot of this criticism comes from. It comes from this, like, I would say it's a faux science. It's a faux um it's a faux sort of like analytical approach that thinks like, ah, you know, we got to criticize this because they they fluffed up some of the details, but we know the really real. We can scrape beneath ideology, you know? Like that was kind of my criticism, and we can talk about this more in a minute, but with like the Jacobin article, it's like, ah, but we know that the writer, he's just obsessed with Russiagate, so he's going to – he has like an incentive to portray Russia in a negative light, but we know because we are – historical materialists, we have access to the really real that's non-ideological. And the article kind of just reeked to me of this strange sort of scientistic, um, almost technophilia that I think is inherently problematic and that one misunderstands uh, how filmmaking works, how storytelling operates as an integral component of just human history and the human experience per se. But also I think it's kind of really naive and it creates up a sort of... Um, that like we are the pure, that we're the true believers, that we understand, that we have access to – we have gnosis. We have knowledge. We've escaped the cave. But they – well, they're just stuck within their Russiagate hysteria or they're stuck within their ideological hysteria. But we have access to the truth. And I think that's just a bunch of bullshit, man. Yeah, so let's talk about that that article a little bit and give it its, its due. Uh, it's called Chernobyl, the show Russiagate wrote um, on Jacobin. And I had a pretty similar reaction to it in that, you know, I think it made a pretty good case. And the, and the basic argument is that uh, Craig, Craig, is it Mazin? Mazin or Mazan? I don't, I don't know how you would say it. I was, I was giving it the French, the French inflection, <laughs> Mazan. <laughs> yeah, Craig Mazin is a, an American <laughs> filmmaker who's done mostly uh, comedies in the past. And he's been pretty successful, but this is certainly a new avenue for him in, in sort of high drama. But that he's, and I didn't know this until reading this article, really, really into like resistancy uh, kind of craziness um, over the past few years. And 
uh, constantly tweets about uh, Trump being in Putin's pocket and crazy stuff about Bernie Sanders being in league with uh, or benefiting from Russian propaganda and stuff like that. And um, I think that there's probably, you know, I don't want to go too far in speculation, but there, there probably is something there in terms of authorial intent, in terms of Mason wanting to, and, he, and, and watch some of the um, the post-credits uh, explainer videos they do after the episodes in Chernobyl. And he certainly seemed like someone who wanted to make connections between what happened in Chernobyl and what's happening in Trump's America in terms of disinformation and a disdain for a scientific consensus and um, uh, academic expertise and stuff like that. And I think he probably did want to make a connection there, right? Um, But then the important thing I think is none of us thought about that until we actually like read about his history and, um, and stuff, right? The Chernobyl as a, as a TV series, as a, as a cultural product exists completely outside of that. Um, such that, yeah, there were some times where it's pretty obvious that they're making connections between, you, you know, this, uh, this, uh, c- catastrophic event happened in, in large part because of Soviet bureaucratic nonsense and sort of tropes about right. the Soviet union and, um, stuff like that. But like, yeah, I think Americans are pretty damn used to that. Um, <laughs> but also, it exists totally on its own without any of that resistancy Trump type stuff in it. And you could definitely watch it and not get any of that, um, and not really care about that, right? And sort of take different sort of moral lessons from it about um, the importance of uh, like independent uh, scientific expertise and stuff like that, or just really simply like the heroism of regular people, which I think was like a pretty constant theme um throughout the whole thing and uh yeah i i thought that the the article really just kind of was a non sequitur like yeah so the creator's a little bit nuts um wouldn't be the first hollywood guy to be a little bit nuts i think they kind of all are <laughs> they're at least the ones that are constantly on coke right so uh if we're going to yeah. sort of disparage and throw out a cultural product because the creator had some nefarious intentions behind it i think we basically have to burn like all of our records and dvds yeah. Now, I did see an interesting take adjacent to this type of criti- uh, take from Allison from Red Menace on Twitter who said – and I, I'm going to butcher it, but this is a paraphrase. She said, it's interesting with Chernobyl and Stranger Things 3 coming out um, that – it's not a spoiler if I say this about Stranger Things 3 because it's literally set up in the first episode. So, um, But go watch Stranger Things 3 because it's fun. But anyway – it is interesting that there are kind of these critiques of socialism, and it's almost as though, uh, you know, the that like liberal progressives are uh, kind of expressing their fear of socialism to try to denigrate it, right? And I was like, see, now to me, that's kind of a more interesting take on this, rather than, oh, Craig Mazin is just this Russiagate guy, and therefore Russiagate is all over, and so there's this hysteric Russiagate nonsense uh, that's underlying um, Chernobyl, which might be there. But I think uh, what you what you definitely get is a sort of like a resurgent criticism of centralized planning and uh, a, a criticism of bureaucratic institutions. And at the same time, that what that means is uh, a heralding of some form of freedom. And in the case of Chernobyl, that form of freedom comes in, trust science, man. Like, just listen to the fucking experts. So there's like a technocratic logic. So I think... A much more interesting criticism of Chernobyl would have been to criticize that technocratic logic that science has the answers to the real truth, the really real. Like I was talking about earlier, interestingly enough, uh, when I was talking about the criticism that like 
that the author of the Jacobin article is like, no, we are non-ideological. We have access to the really real because we're historical materialists and we understand how to analyze uh, historical and structural powers. Um, and so that's, that's you know... It, that that's, part of it was kind of like a parody of Jacobin articles, right? This, this uh, product is not historical materialist enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and I, I don't know, I just thought it was kind of, it was kind of funny. But I also then add that other layer that I actually then I do think that you can even criticize the show itself for also taking a similar stance that Craig Mazin uh, is offering us with like, no, nah, man, the technocratic scientists, they're the ones who have access to the really real. Right, so there's like this weird obsession with the really real. The TV show is obsessed with the really real because the scientists have it, and then the criticism is that no, 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 it's still too ideological. The really real is our historical analysis, or our historical materialist analysis, and it's like they're all fighting over who has access to the really real, which I think is kind of funny. But, um, but with that said, uh, I do think that there are two things, and you mentioned uh, you mentioned this kind of a minute ago. There are two things that I actually want to add or maybe I'll just say one thing the one thing I want to add is like a rebuttal to what this TV show is offering I actually was um overwhelmed not with just the kind of maybe it being a sort of psyop for Russiagate uh cover or uh or, or some sort of um kind of appeal to like non-ideological technocratic uh, wisdom, but rather, I thought something that also came through in the show that was really stark for me was the power of human community to come together, and that was actually probably the strongest element that hit me. Yeah, was I that, totally. And I even tweeted about it, and I said, you know, there's going to be a lot of criticism about like Russian bureaucracy and Soviet state socialism and the control that the state has. I said, but man, these fucking people love their community in this TV show, like in this series, the way they're depicted. I mean, people are willing to die over and over again for the motherland or for their fellow brothers and sisters, for their comrades. Now, you might say, but yeah, they're compelled into it. And yeah, they're, they're human beings that are thrown into an impossible situation. So the question is, is how do you respond in an impossible situation? And I thought one of the things that, that maybe I hadn't thought of before was and this goes to the heart of what how we understand freedom right is freedom just are you free without any restraints whatsoever or is it free within conditions and how do we understand the debates between these various forms of freedom and obviously i don't ever think that there is such a thing as unfettered freedom i think that that's just a sort of like bullshit illusion that people tell themselves to make themselves feel better about the truth of what freedom is which is a much more complicated and sticky embeddedness where you're thrown into conditions that are not of your own choosing so if that's the case intensify that and say that it's not only that you're thrown into a situation not of your own choosing but it's an impossible situation it's a situation where every decision that you make has repercussions that exceed what you would ever thought that you would ever have to deliberate over human lives are going to be lost. There's that moment where they go and they're sitting in the general committee and they're basically saying, you know, we need your, we need your, um, we need your approval. And Gorbachev's like, why do you need my approval? And they're like, well, because these men are going to die. And it's like, that's, that's fucking heavy, man. And then they don't bullshit the workers. They start to bullshit them. And then the one guy stands up, that's one of the worker guys. And he's like, so stop bullshitting us and just tell us how it is. And they're like, yeah, you're probably going to die is basically what they say, right? And then the guys volunteer anyway. And then you have the coal miners who go, and they volunteer knowing full well that 
this is likely going to lead to cancer or other sicknesses, you know, respiratory issues. And I was like, you know, that was, what's that amazing was the best this? example of full frontal male nudity in the history of television, by the way. <laughs> that was awesome. That was awesome. I know. I got worried, though, because I was like, what happens if it's just like the wrong swing of an axe? You know? <laughs> Like, I understand the temperature, but just put some skivvies on at least so that you can just protect the <laughs> hanging and flapping around from getting caught on shit down there, you know? Yeah, Hollywood again, over-dramatizing. <laughs> um, but to me, that was kind of one of the most salient components of the entire series was was thinking through how it is that people come together in those impossible situations. And it makes me then think about what I would do in those situations. And it makes me think about other situations of just the impossible historical moment where people step up and do shit, like the Dunkirk event or, um, you know, when the miners get lost down in Chile or when there's somebody that's drowning and people sacrifice themselves to go save another person. I mean, it's those moments of selflessness for your neighbor that I just found to be so rich that cut through the series and that to me was so interesting because it made me think you know these motherfuckers we tend to think of them as being like these oppressed soviet i don't know automatons but no man that there was probably a sense in which at least in the way that the show's depicting it too but there's probably a sense in which there's not like there's like a real pride for your countrymen for your people for your brother for your comrade um and that's something that exists outside of all of those ideological demarcations about you know, whether American patriots and national pride and uh, bureaucratic control, but that kind of goes to the heart of what it means to be a human connecting with other humans. And I thought that was super interesting. Yeah, when an English speaker does it, it's Dunkirk spirit, right? But when Russians do it, it's oppression. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and, and I think they even kind of uh, countenance that a bit, especially in the scene where the coal miners are confronted by the uh, the coal bureaucrat or energy bureaucrat or whomever it is. And they basically are just like, fuck you, we do what we want. Uh, and we'll do this because mm. we want to, not because you tell us to. And uh, I think they talked about it a bit in the after episode that the coal miners had this special kind of freedom from the bureaucracy because they were so because the entire system depended upon them, and not mm. many people would be willing to do what they were doing. And uh, so that that was hinted at, and I appreciated that. And you know, there's that that classic Frederick Jameson quote, which we all know that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And I think that. Um, there's something about disaster movies and post-apocalyptic movies that get to this idea that even if the world ends, it's almost like that frees us a little bit from something. Um, mm. And so you think of of all the different zombie uh, television series and movies and stuff like that. And there's something like almost relieving about being done with modern civilization because then you kind of get to make yourself as you want, even though technically – uh, your freedom in terms of the options available to you are, are, are very strictly limited and are um, much more finite than they are in modern society. There's something about really being able to choose um, and to think deeply about it and make yourself that even with limited options seems more free than modern society. And that's totally ideological. And I don't think that's necessarily totally. a good thing. But I do think there's something interesting there about the idea that freedom isn't necessarily about the number of options you can have of what to do with your day and with your life. And mm. that I think is true. And I think it's kind of a counter ideology to our uh, idea today that uh, if we can just maximize the options you have in life, then you are truly free. Um, 
No, I think the the fact that we can see these incredible events where you're really not given many choices, you're strictly limited, but then one of those choices, because it's so strictly limited, it's going to be incredibly meaningful to you. Um, that's something something closer to what true freedom might be. And I mm. think that while still ideological, I think it's an important counter uh, ideology to the the popular notion of freedom as just quantity of options. And so while it's played out and it's certainly a Hollywood trope, stuff like Dunkirk and Chernobyl, I think, does those, those things effectively. And it's, you know, great television as great filmmaking, and it affects us so greatly because um, it sort of plays with that notion that seems alien to us today where every single day is exactly the same. And we're kind of forced uh, and coerced externally um, to do the exact same things as everybody else and not really truly get to explore who we are or what we can be mm. in a meaningful sense. Yeah. I've been thinking about this a little bit lately in kind of um, mapping this on to, I mean, I, I kind of mentioned it earlier, but to how it is that uh, that we use like linear algebraic equations and algorithms in pretty much everything now. Right, and that we're kind of relying on the algorithm, the capital A. Uh, but I've been thinking about this also maybe in relation to disaster films. And one of the ways I've been thinking about it is a lot has been written on like zombie films in particular, how zombies are like uh, the symptom of the real of capitalism, right? And uh, it, and then there's a bunch of other stuff written on how zombie films relate to capitalism as well. You know, like the proletariat and shit like that but but one of the ways is um the psychoanalytic reading is that zombies are like the expression of the real or uh, a symptom of the real and so i've been thinking a lot about how it is that we can think of uh, of disaster films in general as kind of speaking of uh, of a similar tendency of this kind of like excessive beyond that is threatening us constantly and so our response is to sort of mitigate the beyond you know in finance they call it risk management and I think in the form of narrative storytelling, we we call it like pathos or like a protagonist's story arc, the three-act structure. I think that is a kind of uh, linear algebraic equation for how to manage uncertainty. The hero's journey is precisely that. It's this person that is faced with a life-disrupting event, and the person then goes through a series of sequences, highs and lows, to achieve a target, and in the end learns something about him or herself and has therefore become changed in the world and could never return back to the world because the world itself has also changed, right? Um, so there's a sense in which uh, this journey has to deal with that uncertainty of the beyond that is threatening them. And disaster films do this in a very potent sense. And so you take a film like Zombieland um, or you could take a film like Chernobyl. And I think we could even read them side by side. A film like Zombieland, one of the things that's so appealing to me about a film like Zombieland is you get a crew of four people who are in an impossible situation. Everyone else has become a zombie. They're very different people. They're differently equipped. You know, you got like the aggressive killer guy. You got the person who's neurotic with all the rules. Uh, you've got the kind of like clever, quippy young girl. And then Emma, I mean, Emma Stone's character, she's kind of there. She doesn't pack, pass the Bechdel test in her character, maybe. Um, <laughs> no, maybe they do. they do. The film does, I guess. They do have at least one line of dialogue between her and the sister where they're not talking about boys. Um, but no, her mission is to protect her younger sister, right? That's her mission. Um, and so she will do whatever it takes to protect her younger sister, to get her sister to be happy, to get her to, uh, to have some level of enjoyment outside of this impossible situation that is threatening them with terror. So, so they each have their, like, differently... Uh, 
assessed or are differently, um, they have their different capacities uh, within the situation. So each of them have a different like pricing model or they have a different uh, it, solution to the equation, let's say. But nevertheless, it's all about this setup of a narrative that uh, when they all come together, it's like with your powers combined, I am Captain Planet, that each of their individual equations aren't sufficient and then together somehow they can overcome the real that is facing them. They can keep it at bay a little bit, right? And I think there's something interesting also in how Chernobyl is doing that. And um, Chernobyl ultimately is asking questions. It's why didn't we have the right algorithm in place or why didn't we have the right uh, algebraic equation in place to prevent this disaster? And so then the solution for Chernobyl, and this is where you just said a minute ago it's ideological. The solution for Chernobyl, I think, is that it is ideological precisely because it's saying, well, trust science. Science is that solution so that we can mitigate disaster moving forward. And then you as the viewer, I think us as the viewers, are supposed to watch this and be like, okay, so this is where the Soviet Union and their bureaucracy, because they're incompetent or whatever it is, you know, maybe there is a criticism there. Um, this is where they failed, but this is where we can learn from that failures because we trust science. So whether we then look forward at the crises of uh, climate breakdown and uh, the ecological uh, crises of biodiversity and acidification of water and uh, our agricultural farming runoff that are confronting us at the moment and um, the plunder of our uh, of our oceans and things like that, we can look at all those things and we can say, okay, well, we're facing a crisis that itself is a symptom of this kind of like, or that is an expression of excess that is facing us and haunting us. But we just have to have the right tools in place to fix it. So what are the right tools that we can use to employ to fix it? And um, I think there's something interesting in how these types of narratives kind of almost condition us to think that there's only a certain set of tools that we can actually use to solve the problems. And it's, in this instance, it's, you know, through trust, trust science. And then in the form of like a zombie land, it's like form community and um, have different people around you that have different skill sets that you guys can all come together and you can, you can overcome these problems. And so I think there's like a criticism here to say that there is something kind of like interesting and pathological about it. But at the same time, I think there's also something quite interesting where we could say, no, but there is a way that we do need to figure out how the fuck that we're going to kind of confront the excess of the beyond or the horrors of, um, the crises that are going to constantly face us and how do we respond in those situations? Yeah. So there's an interesting comparison here between, um, what the, what the show sort of, um, builds up as the, the main antagonist, right? It's sort of the Soviet bureaucracy. Um, and what, how you would compare that to sort of, uh, ecological disaster that's sort of coming on us today, right? Which seems obvious in terms of the, temporal placement of the show right it's, it's happening now for a reason and clearly the creators intended for it to be a bit of a, a morality play um, for us to learn something from today right so the way the show sets it up is that um the soviet union basically just would not under any circumstances admit that it made a mistake because by doing that it was showed that it lacks certain knowledge it doesn't have a, a sort of uh, a universal God's eye view of historical mm. progress or whatever. And then people will lose faith in it. And over the long term, um, that would be destruction of society or the bonds that hold together the Soviet Union, right? And so that's sort of the logic of it, right? Which we've seen in countless other uh, critiques of um, Soviet Union and, and uh, sort of top-down socialism like that. But then you look today and that's just completely 
not at all the way that uh, sort of um, scientific consensus is is disparaged or ignored today, right? Like no one's stopping um, scientists from speaking. No one's sort of telling them they they can and can't say certain things in public. If anything, there's there's a, a debate about whether scientists are saying too much, and that mm. it's um, actually there's so much of it that it's it's like a like a flood or an onslaught, a deluge of of terrible catastrophic information. It's actually making people um, despair and not want to do anything. Right? There's debates mm. among scientists about not speaking so much about it because it's too mm. much. So um, it seems like it's it's in terms of if that's the morality play that we're supposed to learn something from. And I think it's, um, was it uh, Legasov, the final words of the series is something like, um, I can't remember the exact line, but something about truth and lies, right? That's Where right, yeah. lies are the thing that destroys us and truth is the thing that will save us, right? And it's very um, abstract and you're not really sure what he's talking about, like scientific truth or like moral truth, or maybe it's both. Maybe they go hand in hand in some way. Um, but that just mm. doesn't really seem like the enemy today like it's the people who who rag on about fake news being like the destruction of our civilization like really like as if one that's new which it's of course not right there's long long history of, of of fake news from yellow journalism all the way back to you know ancient times but even with that um it's it's not at all the case that like that uh sort of trump and his cronies are like lying in public and that's convincing people to go against um what you know truthful honest scientists are predicting like these people will believe whatever he says it doesn't matter right um <laughs> it it has nothing to do really with like a, a malevolent deceiver who is tricking otherwise um uh, good people who just happen to be naive and aren't able to sort of grasp that they're being uh, hoodwinked or conned right um they could very well be convinced that they're being conned and not care there's something mm. deeper ideologically in support of Trump, that's not really just about, uh, you know, truth and lies. I, I mean, I'm kind of dancing around the issue here, but it just seems like um, the lesson we're supposed to get from this ultimately falls a little flat in comparing the issue in the Soviet Union to the issue today. And it seems to be this notion that all autocratic governments are kind of function the same way by stifling mm. dissent, right? Mm. Which isn't necessarily the case. Right. Yeah. You know what, man? So I got a buddy who uh, he is, I, I think I've mentioned him before, but he's he's a, he's a provocateur uh, to the hilt. And one of the things that he talks about, he defends a lot of sort of uh, dictatorial forms of government, you know, and, and I never know how far he like really means this or if he's kind of just trying to stimulate thought or to... I don't know, be a, an intellectual shock jock. Um, but, you know, he'll, he'll like, support North Korean dictatorship uh, for certain things that they do. You know, obviously not atrocities that are committed against human beings, but um, he'll kind of, like, support the, the heavy hand of top-down governance, which is just so, like, viscerally grotesque for somebody who grows up in America because you just... Everything from Rocky movies to late-night news to the teen shows that you watch are are bred to think in a completely different way. And um, and it has been interesting to have, you know, long conversations with him uh, about his uh, his views on things and, you know, talking about uh, 
China, both present day, but also, you know, Mao's China, talking about the Soviet Union, talking about North Korea. Um, he's from India, so talking about certain things going on in India at the moment, um, and, th and then also historically, and then talking about things in the United States and now throughout Latin America. And um, I don't know, man, I think... Um, it, it just it just isn't so black and white, right? That that somehow top down systems are de facto evil. That uh, that top down systems somehow are inherently suppressing of the most important component of what it means to be human, which is your individual freedom to consume and to choose whatever product you fucking want, which is how we think freedom is expressed. And, um, and, and I don't know, um, it just seems that, so in, in this, in this series, you said that at the end, there's this kind of dichotomy between truth and lies, right? And, uh, and you said, you don't know if it's moral truth or if it's like scientific truth. And I feel like it's both for, for the series Chernobyl. It's that, uh, that, that the criticism that the show is trying to level against top-down state socialism bureaucracy is precisely that um that they didn't listen to scientific truth and therefore that led to moral failings or right? it's a it's a moral imperative to place instrumental scientific uh rationality on a pedestal yeah yeah it's it's it, it, it's just a very technocratic kind of logic that's being articulated i i absolutely think that that i mean like for me that was a very heavy theme persisted in each episode um and it kind of culminates in that that courtroom scene and you're like ah okay i get it i see what you're saying writers um but but i think there is something really important to kind of think about uh that relationship between what is true what is false um to what extent should scientific rationality actually govern our societies and i'm not saying that we shouldn't listen to science for people that are listening i'm trying to do the um annoying philosophical thing and just linger for a minute without trying to make an assessment because do you remember when and this was i think your shitty minute when neil degrasse neil degrasse tyson came out and was oh, trying rationalia. to argue for rationalia right and we had a long discussion about what was insufficient about this technological instrumental scientism as being like the foundation for a society and and i think it's really important for us to kind of think through those things to think through this relationship between truth between falsity what is falsity what are lies um in what instance are we going to kind of tolerate things that are kind of bullshitty and in what instance are we not going to tolerate things that are kind of bullshitty because in a sense a lot of the um claims towards truthiness, let's say, the capital T truthiness or rationalia, there are lies embedded within that ideological position as well. The question is we need to seek out where those divergences are, like where even those things are ideological, where they're sort of covering over the truths, the whole truths or uh, other, other elements, whether it's like sins of omission or sins of commission, there are things that are being left out or things that are being violated in every sort of like discursive or ideological position so it's, i think it's just important to seek out 
where those points of divergence are from within every embedded context without just simply front-loading it and saying any kind of top-down bureaucratic system is necessarily going to cover over truth and that any sort of supposed bottom-up approach like science, which isn't really entirely bottom-up, there are top-down measures that impose upon scientific consensus as well, right? That we need to try to like work through what are the truth, uh, what are the areas of truth and what are the areas of falsehood even within these positions. Basically what I'm saying is everything is ideological. So let's stop pretending that things are non-ideological, right? Well, he, and let's, yeah. yeah, yeah, go ahead. Here's the, the counter uh, thought experiment to help sort of place a divergence between that uh, scientific truth and moral truth being kind of hand in hand. Imagine a scenario where the scientists are fully allowed to publicize exactly what happened and how the government was at fault and all the mistakes that were made, everything. So no sort of um, uh, placing a, th a thumb on dissent, right? And then when asked for a response, the government just says, oh yeah, we're building... Uh, anti-radiation shelters for the rich and for government bureaucrats. <laughs> so go do whatever you want. Um, what, yeah. I mean, that's basically what's happening with climate change, right? It's basically mm. we're building these shelters and the people in the third world and in the um, southern half of the globe can just fend for themselves. And the rest of us, we're going to be uh, insulated from it with little pockets within the global north of, of where people will suffer. Uh, and we know it's going to happen and we're planning for it. And uh, we're just not going to do anything to make it uh, fair at all, not even a pretense of it. Um, that's what's happening now, and that's completely different than the way Chernobyl is uh, presented, right? With this like mm. necessity of controlling knowledge and that um, with the, the argument being, well, if we just release the flows of knowledge, then the sort of moral uh, imperatives and behavior follows necessarily from the knowledge. That's right. Which is the logic of instrumental rationality, right? right. Um, and that doesn't at all follow. Right, as we see with our current context. So you can kind of see the weakness of that argument even in our current context. And so, yeah, it especially falls flat, that, that moral argument, um, when compared to what's happening today. Yeah, read Kant, motherfuckers. A hypothetical imperative is not going to give you freedom because you're just trapped, <laughs> you know? Like, come on. Um, so then let's think, let me ask you this, because this ties into this, and this is kind of what I was getting at. Are there instances, and what are those instances, or... How can we equip ourselves to assess the appropriate instances when information should be withheld? Because, because then that also sounds like a scary thing too, right? And this is kind of going back to my conversations with my friend where it's like, well, does everybody, does the populace, the demos need to know everything all the time? Or is there, is that also kind of uh, going to lead us down a, a path where we just simply can't manage of information overload. You know, is there a sense in which maybe governments are good when they do withhold certain bits of information from us? But then does that be like, oh my God, Austin, what the fuck are you talking about? No, we have whistleblowers for a reason because governments are fucking sneaky and they're going to lie and they're going to run false flag operations or um, they're going to be plotting behind our backs to misuse uh, misallocate resources for defense contracting and then they're going to fudge the numbers you know i mean what do you think about this is there is there a sense in which it is good to sometimes not have transparency in government yeah so i think being an annoying philosopher means uh answering a question by problematizing it because <laughs> okay. there isn't really an easy answer to it right yeah. so it seems to me like this question gets down to the problems of um ideal theory versus non-ideal theory Right. Okay. So ideal theory says probably something along the lines of there's an, an imperative for governments to be transparent and yeah. open 
to citizens, right? That's a kind of like classic Rawlsian thing, right? You just can't really execute your duty as a citizen unless you have the appropriate information um, about what you do and the effects it will have and that kind of stuff. Right? And there has to be a level of fairness between people and their government when it comes to level of information given them. But the non-ideal theory tells you, well, what do you do in a scenario where um, some people will die, but because of the irrational fear of nuclear radiation, uh, telling people about it immediately means it causes panic and that actually creates a worse situation. I know Fukushima yes. had basically that issue where they, mm. they feel like the Japanese government feels like in retrospect, they shouldn't have been so transparent um, with information about the nuclear reactor because it actually the, the panic induced um, by all that information caused more damage than the actual uh, destruction of the nuclear reactor. Um, mm. So yeah, there's, there's a, there's a major problem there, right? I think the important thing is to realize that, um, both of those are going to have some pull on us, right? The ideal theory, the the sort of moral imperative that we want our governments to to follow uh, relative to their citizens, is super important, and we can't just ignore that. But that we have to um, consider the non-ideal implications as well, mm. and that means making tough decisions, right? You're kind of in a double bind. If you yeah. are transparent and the outcome is bad, you're going to be criticized for it for for not doing your job as a government by uh, trying to minimize damage. And if you aren't transparent and there's more damage caused by it, you're going to be criticized for that, even if you couldn't really have foreseen either. Um, and so I think the important thing is to, is to realize that we can't just, when a, when the margin or the, when the, um, what do you call it? When the uh, sort of air on the side of ideal theory, we blame them for not considering the non-ideal implications and then vice versa for the other. That's mm. just not a really good way of, of critiquing things. And that seems to be always the criticism of like the Soviet Union in retrospect, right? Um, oh, if only they had just, you know, stopped stifling dissent. If only they had been more transparent. And if only this, that, and the other. And that seems to me not the most effective way of sort of objectively or attempting to objectively criticize uh, the Soviet Union. Which I should add, I'm probably a little bit more on the side of I see no reason for Soviet Union apologia. Like, I just, I don't get when <laughs> socialists want to um, right. apologize for the Soviet Union. It just, it, I have zero impulse to do that, and I have no problem with criticizing it. That said, I think you can also admit that, and here's kind of the, the counter to the idea that um, if only uh, truth was opened up, then all the problems of the Soviet Union would, would go away with the bureaucracy leaving. Uh, things got worse. In Russia after the Soviet Union fell and pretty much every single measure right income inequality to health outcomes to happiness outcomes to economic um, uh, issues everything got worse and is in many cases still worse so it's not like and, and it's, you know Putin kind of rose in an era of we need to uh, resolve the, the the sort of damage that you know free market capitalism has done to uh, to Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union brought back some of that nationalism um, mm. it's just, it's not a very good criticism of the Soviet Union. There's better ones that can be done. And I think I'm also pretty on the train of like, I don't see any need to hold up the Soviet Union as like the great example of socialism. I think we can honestly say that, uh, there's better examples out there and we can use them piecemeal to build a better society rather than just being like, actually socialism wasn't that bad in the Soviet Union. Yeah. I'm cool. It was a failure. That's fine. We don't we don't need to worry about that. But sometimes failures are important. 
you know? Not, it, it can be a it failure without being the worst thing that ever happened to human history, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there can be successes within failures. This, again, goes to kind of what I was talking about earlier. It, it, it's almost like we need to make a totalized judgment that it's either a failure or it's a success. But it's – no, man. It's like they did some things horribly wrong, and there were some other things that they probably did that were good that we could be like, fuck, well, okay, maybe we could learn from some of that shit. So – and this isn't to like justify atrocities, but I think people have a really difficult time. I was actually hanging out with a friend recently, and I was trying to have like a nuanced discussion about uh, about a very sensitive issue. And she was just like, no, like that doesn't matter because people were affected. Victims were affected. And I was like, but don't you think it's important to to examine the kind of causal mechanisms? And she's like, no, I don't. She's like, because that's an excuse. And I'm like, I don't think that's an excuse. I think... I think it's important to analyze those causal mechanisms so that we can maybe learn how to not repeat the mistakes or so that we can learn how to meet people and to kind of treat them in their conditions where they're at. And she's like, no, because that doesn't do anything to help the victims. And I was like, hmm, I don't know. I didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't like that assessment of things. And I was like, I, maybe it's just because I'm an annoying philosopher and I have the luxury and the privilege to be able to sit back and, and to be able to kind of think about these things and deliberate on these things. And I haven't been the victim and so I'm not seeing it from the victim's eye. So in one sense, I could totally see where she was coming from. And she did have a point. But in another sense, I think she also was kind of missing on something that I think is important for us to really kind of to make sure that we aren't just rushing to judgment and brushing aside, you know, rigorous analysis of the actual causal mechanisms so that we can prevent those things from repeating in the future, which I think is extremely important, right? So it's kind of... Maybe it's this double bind again that they're that we're constantly in a double bind in all of these situations, um, and so I kind of feel something similar with with regards to how it is that we criticize the Soviet Union, how we criticize Maoism, um, how we criticize uh, Castro's Cuba. That um, that yeah, there are going to be times where we're going to be like, fuck, certain elements of them were spectacular failures, and then at the same time, there were other things that were extremely important and and, and extremely beneficial to the populace. What were those things? What led to those things? What were the conditions that led to those things? And how can we analyze the conditions that led to the kind of failures? And I think to be able to to do that, I mean, that is, I think, the, that is the benefit of having historical analysis and have and having records. Um, so that and having just too much information is that we can wade over those things and we can eventually, hopefully, come to a point where we can make decisions. That's the problem. At what point do you stop analyzing and then make fucking decisions moving forward, though? Right. And that's where people get frustrated with philosophers, because we're just endlessly, uh, we're endlessly reserving any sort of like totalized judgment to subordinate it to this process of problematizing, of unpacking, and of questioning, which I don't have a problem with, because I think that inherently in doing that, we actually are recreating the world in a literal sense. Um, but I know that politically that isn't satisfying to a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, it's like that straight up Zizek thing of stop, stop doing and start thinking. Right? right. We have too much of, we need to act. We need to act. We need to do something immediately. And that has nothing but a long history of failure. So maybe yeah. at certain points we need to stop and think because banging our head against the wall, even though we're doing something, isn't actually, uh, changing anything for the better. Hmm. All right. Uh, so I guess I mean we could probably keep talking about this show and related issues. For, we stopped talking about the show a while ago. I know <laughs> we could talk about related issues forever. But uh, what are your final thoughts about the show? Like, 
criticisms or anything? Is there anything else you wanted to mention before we close up? No, I think kind of in closing, um, what we're kind of practicing here is this very idea you were just talking about of sort of this nuanced problematizing and thinking. And that we yeah. can do that even with the cultural product where we can praise Chernobyl in certain respects and criticize it in others all while appreciating that it's an important cultural event and object and that it's mm. worth it's a, by doing this at the very least we're acknowledging that it's worth the attention of doing this which we you know we're probably not going to do an episode on stranger things because as fun as it is who gives a shit right so <laughs> right um yeah i think that's a, a good sort of object lesson for the way we, we can approach not only cultural products but you know uh, political events as well you know so on the i dig this movie podcast that i do with kier we this past week the episode will be up uh you know in the next few days probably we did a film that is in the cultural war sense of the word that is problematic because it's an adaptation of a brett easton ellis novel um we did the rules of attraction did you ever see that film no i didn't of course you know brett easton ellis though and he is not one to shy away from taboo subjects or from despicable characters and from despicable actions of his despicable characters. And he will display them all in their gratuitousness, right? And one of the things that, that Kira and I were wrestling over was, can you have a good film that is like unethical? Like, is this a good film if it's actually if there is something problematic about it, and I don't just mean that I'm capitulating to kind of the the terms of the culture war. I mean, I think people know that I'm not I'm not primed in that way. So when I say that, I mean it was it was really interesting to watch it in the context of certain issues that are going on in cultural debates at the moment, um, but also just with having a sort of more sensitive lens to um, to violence on screen and to um, there are depictions of date rape on screen and and how they're handled and and what is the line between like uh, the glorification of these things and also this being like a, a quote unquote realistic depiction of college life of privileged upper class college life and and it was really interesting because we came away and it was a very sort of like it, the conversation struggled a lot for us because I think both of us were uncomfortable. And I think part of it was is that we were uncomfortable uh, uncomfortable with admitting to ourselves that we enjoyed this cultural product that we know is inherently problematic, um, which was also interesting because we kind of you know admit that to ourselves throughout the course of the discussion. But then simultaneously, it led to that sort of like larger question is of can there be a piece of art that you say that it isn't always ethical and that that it can't that we can't totalize it and just say like x is y you know like chernobyl is good or chernobyl is ethical or chernobyl is moral do we just need to kind of do do kind of artistic experiences and cultural artifacts do they require a different lens of analysis and i would say they do um i think it's extremely actually imperative that we don't just reduce cultural media to x is y on the whole, well, let's say for the most part, I do think you could say that someone like Logan Paul is a douche, and I think that's <laughs> fair. <laughs> but, but no, even still, like even something like like Logan Paul's podcast or the YouTube video that he puts out, like, is there something interesting? Is there something important? Is there something culturally 
resonant about these things that we need to kind of pause without just simply dismissing it and, you know, kind of plugging our nose and saying, ew, no, get it away from me. And again, I, I don't know. Maybe it's because of my, maybe it's because of my privileged position, uh, you know, uh, that I've had so far in my life. You know, I mean, I'm sure there is. I'm sure someone could easily level that criticism against me. And I don't, I don't deny that. Um, I perpetually want to be shown those areas where I am blinded to my own sort of biases, let's say. But it is something to consider. And I did, th- I did think it was an interesting conversation. It kind of makes me think something similar with Chernobyl, you know? Yeah, that's a super interesting question. I think I agree that there's a certain uh, sort of leeway that we give to um, artists of all kinds when it comes to the sort of morality of their creations being a little bit more open. And Kierkegaard actually makes a really fun argument in the philosophical fragments about that idea, giving more leeway to artists in the moral sphere. Um, mm. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that we give entirely, but like it's a complete free-for-all, right? Like I think there are certain films that are just straight up exploitative of certain people and people groups, and that's I think we can judge as a moral failure. So there's, a, there's a, maybe a different sort of rules of judgment that go along there. Um, and so exploring what those are and the reasoning for them, I think, yeah, that's a super interesting question. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, I would say if you haven't seen Chernobyl, um, go fucking see it. Absolutely. It was a really... You agree? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely, it's definitely like it's... I'm so bored with a lot of formulaic Hollywood productions, and this is this is one of the ones in recent memory that... Uh, that I was not bored for a second. Like, I think I watched, I, I watched the, I, I didn't watch it until the fourth episode came out and I binge watched all four episodes and I was so bummed that I didn't wait one more week because I just wanted closure. <laughs> so I waited like, and then I had to wait like four or five days for the for the next episode to come out. And I was like, oh, but it was like, people were anticipating Game of Thrones. I was anticipating the final episode of Chernobyl. So, which doesn't happen to me a lot with, with like I said, with typical Hollywood productions. I tend to, I don't know. They don't really hold my interest that much these days. A quick question for you. Uh, mm-hmm. This will say a lot about both of us. Uh, what was the hardest thing to watch in the whole series? Oh, the hardest thing. Oh, shoot. I don't know. Scene I, or I, I event need, or anything. I need a minute for this. Okay, I'll talk about mine really quick. Okay, yeah, because I don't uh, even know if I can remember. Go ahead. Yeah, because this definitely says a lot about me. It was for sure the uh, team of guys who have to go around and shoot all the house... Oh, oh yeah. Because they're irradiated. Yeah, I was just like, nope, nope, I'm shooting myself. (laughs) (laughs) I'm saving all the dogs and I'm living on an irradiated island with them (laughs) for the rest of my life. Dude, that would be a good movie. (laughs) That was Isle of Dogs, wasn't it? That's what I was just thinking, man. (laughs) Fucking Isle of Dogs, but they're all radiated from Chernobyl. (laughs) Oh my God, that's hilarious. They call it Chernobyls? Yeah. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> All right, I don't even have anything to say. Let's just end it on that. That's perfect. <laughs> All right, sweet. So now we're going to go to our final segment of the episode. This is the Sticky Leaves. This is where one of us gets to share something that is giving us meaning in a world that is oftentimes sensed to be devoid of meaning. It's Troy's turn. So what's making you feel good, man? So mine will be quick today. Um, What's been giving me meaning at this time 
um, has been a couple of musical artists from Japan um, who come from diametrically opposed genres and uh, cultures, as far as I can tell, but uh, have just been um, really providing something for me over the last month or so. And uh, those are Ichiko Aoba, who is a Japanese folk artist, and then Otoboke Beaver, who's a Japanese hardcore band. I think I actually sent you a video of theirs a few weeks ago. Yeah, they're amazing. Um, and what I love most about, and it, I actually should have asked you about this, Austin, but uh, I can give a couple of 20-second snippets of these two to give the listeners uh, a feel for that, if, if that's not too much work. Um, otherwise, cut this out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, what I love most about this is, you know, both sort of guitar-laden, quiet, ambient folk on one hand, and then hardcore on the other, um, are American creations, right? American English-speaking, Anglo-American creations um, in large part. I actually don't know if that's for sure about guitar-laden folk, but at least dominates the 20th century, you know, folk uh, cultural sphere. Mm. And so Japanese musicians taking on in, in, in unfortunate terms, culturally appropriating uh, these genres of music because Japan has a fairly alien culture compared to uh, some of the West means that it does not sound like cookie cutter copies. They twist and mangle and shred uh, these cultural um, styles into something completely new and different and unique. And they're also incredibly talented. And you put those two things together and you get really, really interesting music and art. And I think that there's this push. Uh, I don't want to overestimate because I don't think it's, it's as strong a push as some people think. But for sort of not doing this sort of cultural appropriation, not doing the um, sort of stealing from other cultures thing, which mm. um, is in some respects I think appropriate because there's certainly a case when you can exploit another culture, especially one that that your own culture has sort of oppressed. Um, but this I think is an example of how that can be awesome. Right and mm. how all cultures are blends of other cultures in the past. Uh, so, um, yeah, these two groups, or one artist and one group, um, have really just kind of rocked my world musically over the past month or so. Mm. Um, Ichiko Yoba, for one, plays this really sparse, minimal folk music. Um, there's an, actually a wonderful video on YouTube of her playing on a giant rock. She's just sitting on a giant rock playing songs in front of like 50 people somewhere in mm. like the uh, sprite-filled forests of Japan. <laughs> Where the forest spirits enchant her and make her play I want to be there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's straight out of a Miyazaki film. And um, she's a really good guitarist and has – it's incredible how her voice is very – you know, it's like super high voice, um, very light and kind of fey and like that stereotypical Japanese style. But it's also very strong and cuts right through the guitar playing, which mm. is unique. And I, I don't, I'm not like an expert on acoustics or anything uh, or an audiophile like that, but it really seems unique in the way her voice is able to cut through the guitar, even with um, it's, it's the properties that it has being so light. And then mm. uh, uh, um, Adaboke Beaver is just this insane... Hmm hardcore band. oh yeah like imagine if sleater kenny just stayed in a house and did drugs for five years and then came out with new music this is what other book beaver would sound like um they are extreme they are crazy and they're really good musicians playing hardcore music uh just go and look for any uh video on youtube of theirs and get a taste for 
they even combine like bits of J-pop into like really extreme hardcore, um, which is insanely fun. And so, yeah, uh, Japanese uh, appropriations of uh, like American or Anglo-American rock music has a long history of being great from one of the greatest uh, sort of doom metal or um, drone metal bands, Boris, Japanese band, they're all time classic, Boredom's classic uh, hardcore punk experimental band, um, Fishman's as a Japanese instrumental uh, kind of shoegazy um, rock band that's all time classic. There's a new um, artist named uh, Haru Nemuri. Uh, not many people have heard of her, but she does like combinations of J-pop and ambient music and experimental music and punk and all sorts of crazy stuff and um, that I, I really love. So check out all the different kinds of weird experimental Japanese uh, rock and pop music because there is a shitload out there that's awesome. How do you spell um, the 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 two the main two that you recommended? Yeah, so uh, Ichiko Aoba, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, but I might not be. Is I C H I K O, and then A O B A, Ichiko Aoba, and then Otoboke Beaver is O T O B O K E, and then Beaver. Yeah, uh, you did. You sent me that one video. I can't remember what the name of the song is now. What's the? I don't. Uh, don't start my fire or don't let my fire or something like that. It, that's a great fucking song, man. Yeah. Yeah. I, I listened awesome. to it like 10 <laughs> times and then I was like, I want to see if they do this live as well as they do it recording. Did uh, recorded? Did you, have you seen any other live footage? I have, but I don't remember if I've seen that song or not. They're just as crazy live. It's fucking oh, yeah, awesome, clearly. man. <laughs> it's fucking crazy. I love it. Um, I know. I would. I would totally see them live. I saw them. I think they were in. They were in an English-speaking country. I don't remember if it was the UK, Canada, the States, or Australia. I don't think it was Australia because I would have gotten excited because I would. I was kind of looking to see if they were going to be here anytime soon. Um, but uh, but yeah, they um, they look like a great time live. I would totally fucking see them live. So yeah, yeah. Um, would you ever live in Japan? I don't think I'd ever live there. I don't think I have the, well, maybe I would. I don't know. I haven't been, so how can you really say? Have you been to Japan? I've not, and I really want to go. I had a teacher when I was in fourth grade who was one of the kind of seminal influences on my early life, and she, I don't remember if she lived in Japan or if she just spent a lot of time in Japan, but we had a whole week. You know how they do like cultural appreciation week? It probably was cultural appropriation week. Cultural appropriation That's a week. very good Freudian slip. <laughs> <laughs> um, but cultural appreciation week or whatever. And she did uh, Japan where she uh, showed us videos of like, but like not just like, hey, everybody, let's eat sushi and I don't talk about the various empires or whatever, she actually showed us footage of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings, which looking back on it was pretty fucking radical for a fourth grade yeah. American teacher, <laughs> you know? It's pretty extreme. <laughs> like I have images burned into my memory from the documentaries that we watched and about the kind of um, horrific fallout on the people uh, of those towns from the radiation as well. I have images in my mind from those documentaries. So, um, but so I think I've always had, maybe since then, I've always had a fascination with it. And then, you know, there are movies that I fucking love, like Enter the Void that are in Tokyo, where you're just like, oh my God, this is, 
This makes me want to go, even though that's a fucked up movie. Um, <laughs> it, it just, you know, the, there's something so interesting because it seems so far away yet so close at the same time. And I kind of describe this experience as being familiar but foreign. And because it's got lights and, you know, technology that I recognize and skyscrapers that I recognize and things like that, there's a familiarity. But at the same time, it's so radically different to me. And um, I don't know. There's something really appealing. I feel like I would love to be there uh, if I just knew the language. You know, I would love to spend considerable amount of time there. But that's just purely in my fantasy. That's the hard part, right, is um, not just a different language, but a radically different language makes things (laughs) difficult in terms of transition. But then, you know, Japan has a really interesting um, influence on younger uh, American boys, especially right it kind of comes across through comics and manga and anime as a world where boys don't have to change the oil in their trucks to be a man or Mm. like you know work out three hours a day to be a man and so um there's other reasons why i think people appreciate those japanese cultural products of course but it does present this like alternative in some respects not that it's an ideal one certainly not but um uh yeah it's interesting in that way that you probably don't get that from like you know, watching a French movie or a Spanish movie or mm. listening to an English punk band. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. You always have, like, where do you find some of these music recommendations? Like, I, 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 I would never go through my daily life and get recommended experimental Japanese punk rock. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't remember individually. Um, there's I have a bunch of websites and uh, podcasts and YouTube channels that I... Okay. Uh, I frequent and um, whenever they recommend something, I at least check it out because they're kind of figures that I trust, whose taste that I trust. Mm. And uh, sometimes I like it, sometimes I don't. Um, but I'll at least give it a try if someone that I respect um, is into it. Uh, just to name drop a few, a uh, really popular one is The Needle Drop on YouTube. He's a really famous music critic. I found him to be a uh, very intelligent and sophisticated analysis of popular music today. Uh, surprisingly, there's a website called Rate Your Music, which has a really interesting um, sort of community of people who uh, put together basically like lists of the best albums of the year. And the ones that tend to be in the top are sometimes things I've never heard of and are totally off the wall, experimental and interesting. And so you find stuff through there. I think I actually found Ichiko Ayoba from that, from that website mm. um, because she's like sort of making a splash, I think like last year after being around for six or seven years in Japan because all her stuff's in Japanese and it's, you know, not a Venetian alphabet. It's trouble being like, uh, uh, fitting into your iTunes library in a way that you can discern easily what it is. <laughs> mm-hmm. hmm. So when you're spending your mental energy on music recommendations, I'm watching videos on mixed martial arts highlights. I think that I do basketball where you do MMA. Yeah, that might be it. So then when you're looking at music, I'm looking at how to build cabins in the woods. (laughs) I was going to say, like, my music thing is probably more like your skincare thing. Manscaping. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I do have a lot of, like, beard care and skincare and hair care channels and whatnot that I pay attention to. You just couldn't imagine yourself without that, right? It would just, you feel like it's part of your identity. (laughs) Whereas MMA and basketball for us is like, it's just a purely like expression of joy. Yeah. Yeah, 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 that's true. 
That's true. I had uh, I had someone say to me recently, we were talking about like my fantasy for the cabin in the woods and going out there and how my friends tease me because they say, oh, dude, you'd last a week and then you'd be bored. And I have like these this like split personality where part of me loves the urban artsy life and then another part of me loves fly fishing and hiking and camping and being in like a, a log cabin with a cozy you know wood burning stove and a blanket and a book right like uh and he was like well maybe you should just figure out how to get that image of the cabin in the woods in your daily life and i was like oh i was like that's fucking revolutionary man I was like, that's, yeah, well, yes. what does that mean? I think it means that I use that as like a solace or like a, a form of escape to kind of make me happy as like a goal or as something. And he's like, but what if you can find those things in your daily life where it, it just in your every day, you can realize the kind of cabin in the woods fantasy, so to speak, just find those pieces of joy now without having to escape society and run to the mountains and being a hermit sort of thing. Right. So that maybe the dichotomies aren't so dichotomous, but like merge them together. Yeah, or you just build a transporter and then that solves your problem. Fuck, I mean that's... Snap, I'm there. Timeshare, that cabin in the woods, bitch. I know. I know. All right. We'll go ahead and wrap up the episode there. Thanks, man, for recommending that we chat about Chernobyl. I I had a really good time watching the show, but it's really fun to think about it. And I, I didn't think much critically about it after watching, but um, when you mentioned that we should talk about it on the podcast, then I started to kind of organize some thoughts together. And um, that's always the sign of a good TV show, too, if there's a lot to chew on afterwards. So thanks. Yeah, especially dude. on the, the good and bad side, right? You can yeah, kind exactly. of get a nuanced picture of it. Yeah, and, and I love the idea that, um, that, that we can think critically about these things, but without dismissing them. You know, yeah. yeah, like, like people oftentimes ask me like who my favorite philosopher is. And I'm like, well, it's really hard for me to say because like, what does that mean? My favorite in what way? Because there are things that suck about all of them. And there are things that are <laughs> amazing, you know, about some of them. So I'm like, there's, there's nobody that I'm like, oh my God, Deleuze is it. That is what philosophy is. You must listen to everything he says. No, man. I mean, some of that shit is crazy, you know, and I, there are there are things that I probably don't even realize now in my study of Deleuze that at some point in the future I'm going to be like that is just fucking wrong you know or who knows you know but it's always so it's always so nice to have those kind of uh, those piecemeal interpretations of of bits of media or information or figures or whatever so yeah I enjoyed it yeah dude amen to that. So uh, if you want, you can follow us on Twitter, owls underscore at underscore dawn. As Troy said at the outset, you can email us, owls at dawnpodcast at gmail.com. Get those questions ready for us. Um, shoot those things to us. You can support us at patreon.com slash owls at dawn. Get access to bonus content, newsletter, bonus episodes, as well as being able to recommend episodes for future chats for Troy and myself. Uh, what else? Uh, you can catch us on the internet at owlsofdawn.com if you want to drop a comment about the episode, um, as well as other places. I don't know. Insta, Facebook, wherever else. We're probably most of those places. I think we're on uh, on uh, Stitcher now, right? We are on Stitcher now. That's Whatever um, that means. Yes, I was going to say that. Thank you. Yeah, we're on Stitcher now, so you can find us. If there are any platforms that we're not – like. 
I don't know if we're on Deezer yet. I don't know if does anyone use Deezer. Hit us up. Let us know if there are places where we should be that like make it more convenient for you because we want to make sure that it's easy um, uh, for for however it is that you listen to your podcast content. So hit not us up. too easy though. <laughs> not I too mean, you in, got- in a classic philosophical sense. We think that the uh, the work of it's constitutive of the enjoyment. So how about we make the access to the episodes easy but then the mental labor during the episode is where the work comes in no we, we got to be like an underground punk band from the 80s dude like we released release one seven inch and then you got to find us live <laughs> at a bottom basement of a dive bar somewhere or else you're not going to catch us so you gave a romantic take i was thinking in my mind of the de beers corporation and how they monopolize the diamond supply through like restricting <laughs> restricting supply that's what i was thinking i was like well, that sounds fucked up but i like your romanticization of it better that's right that's right all right sweet well i think that's pretty much it dude yeah uh just one more thing i can think of what's up man das Verdania, americanski